Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. The self-righteousness of our fallen condition loves to set the terms for things. It loves to set the terms for what we decide is good and what we decide is evil and what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And this way, self-righteousness can continue on existing. The Pharisees did it in Jesus' day by weakening the law of God, by making it something manageable. As they divorced the law that God gives us from the condition of the heart, they made it into a manageable list of rules, prescribed behaviors, so that they could say, hey, look, I'm fulfilling the law of God. I'm doing the best. And so they made it about their diet, about keeping the Sabbath, keeping purity, and all those numbers of other things that they did with the traditions and the laws of the Pharisees. But they neglected the weightier portions of the law. They neglected love. They had divorced the keeping of the law from the love of God and the love of neighbor. As we see, Moses beckoned the people to love God with their whole heart and their whole soul. They made their duty and service to God. They made their righteousness simply about jumping through the right hoops. In our day, we do that on occasion, but we also do something a little different. We do not neglect love. Although it would be better, maybe, if sometimes we did, the sin of our day is almost more grievous than the Pharisees as we redefine love. When we are commanded in the Ten Commandments to love, that love is bound up in faithful duty towards God and our neighbor, a faithful service to people outside of ourselves. It's bound up in humbling ourselves before others. But in our day, we don't define love that way, do we? We bind up love in both giving and receiving pleasure. For example, a man will say that he loves his children, and then he will spoil them, refuse to discipline them, and neglect them by never teaching them the word of God. That's not love. And the person will say they love their spouse, but he doesn't really mean love. He really just means he loves the pleasure that his spouse can give him. It's not a humble service poured out towards another. It is a pleasure and a desire for pleasure that I can gain for myself. A person will say that he loves God, but he loves the God of his own imagination. As he remakes God in his own image, and he loves the God that will let him do whatever on earth he wants to do, never places any obligations on his life, never makes him feel guilty or judged, and just wants him to be happy. These things are not love. And so we hear the phrase bandied about by many proponents of this form of self-righteousness. They say, love is love. This simply means whatever makes me happy, whatever I like to do, no matter how depraved or evil my appetites are, I call it love, and I can get away with it. I can feel good about myself. I can say that my love is fulfilling the will of God. I can feel righteous. And this is pure wickedness. It's sin. 
This is the most evil lie that we could ever embrace. And it has thrown the world into so much evil and chaos that many people in the world cannot distinguish between good and evil. An objective moral reality such as male and female, natural marriage between a man and a woman, fatherhood and motherhood, faith and devotion, they've been replaced by fornication and strange gender ideologies and devotion to self. And such is the self-righteousness of our fallen age. Sin is called righteousness, and the only evil you can do is challenge another's sinful desire. But Jesus sees right through it. He sees through it as the Pharisees come to him with their questions about the law. Here we have Jesus in the final week of his earthly ministry. He's triumphantly processed into Jerusalem. He has cleansed the temple for the second time. And now all the opponents of Jesus have come as Jesus publicly teaches in the temple to challenge him. They're trying to score a little victory against Jesus. The Sadducees had their turn to try and silence Jesus, and Jesus silenced them with his answers as he turns their questions back in on themselves, revealing their own shortcoming, their own sin. And now the Pharisees, they want their one last crack at him. And they try to look for a good question, and they come up with one. They say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? That's a pretty subtle tactic. They come up to Jesus in feigned humility, pretending to ask him an honest question, but they're trying to trick him. They call him teacher, rabbi. Let's, let's glean some of your wisdom. And you see, no matter how Jesus answers the question, they're hoping that they can claim that he's giving some sort of preference to one portion of the law to another. And so if he says, oh, the best portion and most important portion in the law is not to steal or not to murder or not to commit adultery, well, they can say, oh, but you neglect the Sabbath day. And if he says that it's to keep the Sabbath and to revere the name of the Lord, they can say and accuse him of neglecting to give alms to the poor. They can turn it against him as quickly as they want to. Yet Jesus sees through their little ruse. And while they love to play games with the law, Jesus doesn't. And they fail to realize that the man they are questioning is not some simple rabbi from Nazareth. He's the author of the law. The law of God is not some arbitrary set of rules that some people accumulated as they were wandering in the Sinai wilderness. It's the eternal will of God that he has for his creation. Jesus is the word made flesh. And so when we see the Ten Commandments, we aren't seeing some just set of obligations that we have to fulfill in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We are looking at the eternal, everlasting will of our creator we are looking at how we are to be creatures and as jesus is the one who has delivered us this word he is the eternal god who made heaven and earth it is his will that we have in the law he's the one who wrote the law upon the hearts of man at the very beginning as he created and made the heavens and the earth as the scriptures teach, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who wrote the law, and they think they can humble him by questioning it. So Jesus gives the perfect answer to their tricky question. He delivers the full force and spirit of the law, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. Here Jesus gives the perfect summary of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God by keeping the first three commandments. Love your neighbor by keeping the remaining seven. These words would have been a lump of burning coals upon the head of the Pharisees because it was the perfect response. It was the complete answer to their question, yet it did also what the law always does. It revealed their sin. In answering the Pharisees the way that Jesus did, he completely robs the Pharisees of all of their self-righteousness. Because their entire conception of the law was turned against them. First, Jesus tells them to love the Lord their God. And in that little phrase, maybe they could have said, made a case for themselves. They could have pointed to their works of devotion, their insistence on purity, their keeping of the ceremonial law, etc., etc., etc. But the words that follow, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, oh, that would have crushed them. These men thought of themselves as the great keepers and defenders of the law. But their keeping of the law, it was purely outward. Their hearts, their minds, their souls, that internal reality, that inner life that we have. Jesus knows what's going on with these things too. Right after this question, Jesus chastises the Pharisees for their hearts as he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You play actors at righteousness. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all sorts of uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That is something the Pharisees simply could not do. It is something that we continually will fail to do. It's with, that way with all sinners. We love to play games with righteousness. We love to put on a good act of outwardly doing good things. But if we examine our hearts, we see what wickedness we're fully capable of. As we have the little daydreams, the inward burst of anger, the inward burst of lust, the inward burst of hatred, the resentment that festers in our hearts, and of course every idol that we can conceive for ourselves as we look at things and lust after them and desire them for our good. We see that weakness, and that is because hypocrisy is something that human beings are born with. 
We're born as fallen and sinful creatures, and the intention of our hearts is always continually sinful. God says as much in Genesis 6, right before he sends the flood to destroy the earth. He says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great upon the earth, and that every intention of their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and grieved him. It grieved him to his heart. King David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Jesus even talks about our corrupted hearts and the source of evil and impurity in our life. It says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Such great words for a wicked and sinful spirit of our age and a wicked generation that always tells us to follow our hearts. Don't do that. If this was not enough, the second commandment would have been the final blow. As he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the ugly reality of all self-righteousness. If you are striving to be self-righteous or righteous based on your own merit, your own actions, your own direction in life, you will inevitably neglect your neighbor. You will do those things that lend to your own needs and to your own goals and your own personal desires, your own desire for righteousness, and you will fail to love your neighbor as yourself. Because self will automatically be elevated above the rest. Can anyone could have accused the Pharisees of this? Jesus does. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. And these you have ought to done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out the gnat, and swallowing the camel. Such self-righteousness can certainly exist in our own hearts. The minute we think it doesn't, is exactly when it's the most active. As we will often sit in church, and that moment where we're called to examine our hearts and our behavior according to the word of God that we hear, we often sit in silent self-affirmation. We hear the law and apply it to everyone around us except for ourselves. As a pastor, it can be almost to the point of comedy how often the preaching of the law that is intended for the congregation to hear and internalize is sometimes completely missed. As we sit in silent judgment of every person that we know, but we never really judge our own behaviors. We think of the sins of the world. We think of the sins of the person and the pews across from us. We think of the sins of our spouses, our children, our relatives, our friends. But my sins, those are too precious to be questioned. My righteousness is too impeccable to be judged. And so often in our hearts we create an edifice of righteousness. We make a case of how we are all good people of good will. And when there is something that challenges that edifice of our righteousness, rather than repent of it, we defend ourselves, or we strive to make it into something good. And so we make our vices into virtues. We make sinners into saints by telling ourselves that our sins are good for us. We need the pleasures that they bring. They aren't that bad, after all. How could they be? 
when they give me such joy and happiness. And we fail to see that even as we take pleasure in our sin, our hearts are corrupted. And such is the spirit of this fallen age. Yet Jesus does not leave the Pharisees with just the weight of the law against them. He doesn't leave them without an image of true, eternal, everlasting, godly love. No, he strives to redirect them. He wants them to see the true righteousness that comes from the Son of God. And so, after he answers their question, he asks them a question in return. He says, what about Christ? Whose son is he? See, he didn't want the Pharisees to be stuck in the crushing and terrible agony of their sin. He did not want them to remain in the condemnation of their self-righteousness either. He wanted them to stop thinking about themselves and start thinking about their Savior. And so he asked them this question about the Christ. He wants them to see. He wants them to take their eyes off of themselves and off of their own works and begin focusing on the work of the one who saves them. Because the Christ is more than just a man. Their answer to the question shows their blindness. Jesus asked, whose son is the Christ? And their answer shows their carnal understanding of things. They say, he's David's son. And that's obviously true. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. He would be descendant and a child of the kings of Judah. But he was prophesied to be much more than that, wasn't he? He would be their Emmanuel, their God with us. He would be the wisdom of God made flesh. He would be the mercy of God directed at his people. And Jesus proves this by saying to him, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, the Christ is both David's son and David's Lord. The son of David is much more than just being the son of David. He is also David's God. He is David's deliverer. He is David's Christ. Christ comes into the world to do just that. He's God made flesh to die for sinners. That's what the son of David was born to do. This is the only true righteousness that man can obtain. No self-righteousness is truly righteous in the eyes of God. This is what the Pharisees failed to understand about the law of God. It does not save them. The law is powerless to make a person holy. It is powerless to make a person righteous before God. The law can accuse us. The law can guide us. The law can give us an image of what love is supposed to look like. It can teach us how we ought to behave, but it cannot cure my sinful heart. It cannot reform my fallen flesh. It cannot take away my sins. It can only multiply them. As St. Paul says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace may abound all the more. The law cannot save. The law was the hope of the Pharisees. Our false conceptions of love can't save us either, because God is not mocked. He is love. He gets to define the terms. It is the only son of David who is David's true Lord, and he is the only one who can redeem man from his sinful heart. 
because he is the one who loves us. St. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Here we have the true image of love that God would have us behold. It is the one whose love is actually perfect. He is the one who perfectly loves God both inside and out. As he submits to the will of his Father, even if it means death on a cross, it is his desire to serve his Father. It is his desire to suffer according to the will of his Father. He honors his Father even if it means complete humiliation before the world, as he willingly faces the mockery, the hatred, the beatings, and the shameful cross. His whole self is given over to the will of his Father so that he could be born of a virgin, so that he could die a sinner's death. And in this, the love that he has for his neighbor, you and me, is complete. It is perfect. He even loves the ones who crucify him as he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The love of Christ is the only love that does not falter. It is the only love that is not born of impurity or sinful motivation. It is the only love that denies self out of love for God and others. It is the perfect love that fulfills the law. This is what Jesus would have us all see. This is what Jesus would have us all depend on. He would have us all deny all of our works, our righteousness, our perceived virtues, our disordered affections, and cling to him and what he does. He would have us lift our eyes out from ourselves and have us behold his beautiful and perfect cross as it is his humility for our sake. He would have us seek hope and comfort and righteousness and no other place than his cross alone because that alone is what saves. Jesus would have us deny any goodness in ourselves and cling to him alone and this alone is where sinners are made righteous. We have no other hope. Saints are never made by human efforts. St. John says that we are born of God into holiness. As it says in John chapter 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he alone is our righteousness. We could not ever depend upon our love, our works, our faithfulness, or our devotion, because these things are tainted by our weakness and our sinful nature. We can only depend upon David's Lord and our Lord. This is why we as Christians are called to live daily in penitent faith. We live as the baptized children of God, as we hear in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The work of our fallen flesh is daily drowned and dies and the waters of baptism so that all remains is the work of Jesus. We totally set aside ourselves so that all that remains in us is Christ. And in Christ, true Christian love remains. St. John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, 
God abides in him, and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of final judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. So we strive to love God, and we strive to love neighbor, and we love because Christ first loved us. Yet we know that we will fail. And even in our failure, even in our weakness, even in the misguided affections of our heart, in Christ, our love is perfected. It's made perfect through the forgiveness of sins, as we cast off the filthy rags of our self-righteousness and are covered with the white robes of Christ and his righteousness. Jesus frees us from all hypocrisy. We are free to be honest about our sins. We are free to be honest with ourselves and truly confess our sins. We don't have to hide them. We can, tell, uh, we can speak them to God. We can be honest with each other. We can admit our human weakness to each other. We can be honest with God and not fool ourselves in the thinking that we can deceive him by covering up the sinful intents of our hearts, the sinful actions of our hands, the sinful words of our mouth with a veneer of self-righteousness. Simply by living by faith in Jesus and in true repentance. We can love and deny ourselves without fear. That's true freedom. Freedom to pursue righteousness. Freedom to strive to keep God's law, knowing that even as we fail, we belong to Jesus. And he forgives our sins. And in that, he shows us what perfect love is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to love you and our neighbor. Fill our days with the pursuit of this love so that as we deny ourselves, we live under the image of your Son. But above all, Lord, we pray that you forgive our sins so that there is no room for self-righteousness in our hearts, but only the honor of Jesus, our God and our Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life in Christ Jesus. Amen. We rise.